Hi, and welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. Hey, it's Rachel from the Small Giants community. And if you are enjoying this podcast with Paul, you will love hanging out with 250 other purpose-driven leaders. Register for the annual Small Giants Community Summit, where we bring together like-hearted leaders from around the country for three days of learning and connecting. Visit smallgiants.org to learn more and register, and we'll see you there. Today's guest is Tom Walter, a longtime entrepreneur with great stories and lessons learned. Well, good day, everybody, and I'm uh, happy today to start our inaugural behind-the-scenes podcast with none other than Tom Walter. Tom Walter is a longtime entrepreneur that I've been uh, so honored to know for the last uh, number of years working together in the Small Giants community. It's great to have you on today, Tom. Thank you, Paul. It's an honor to be here with you. Well, you have a, a wonderful story, and many of us that are listeners and that have gotten the opportunity to know you know a lot about your story as a, a, a many-time entrepreneur. Uh, you're a writer. You've written a wonderful book called It's My Company Too. You're a speaker. Uh, you you work with the academic world. You've made tremendous comp- contributions to the, uh, the business community. Uh, what I think is best about you is that uh, you have a wonderful family, and you've had the opportunity to work with many members of your family in your business. Uh, tell us just a little bit about your background and uh, what got you into the whole idea of, of running and being part of your own businesses. Um, I'm honored that you picked out the family as being a critical part of my, who I am. Um, my family, as all good parents are, such as you, Paul, the family has always been important to me. And I come from a very large family. I had 10 brothers and sisters or 11 siblings. I was the second oldest. And uh, our parents sent us to Catholic schools, uh, which were very expensive at the time. And even though my father had a senior leadership position in a Fortune 50 company, there wasn't enough money to really send all of us to Catholic schools. The tuition expenses were huge. So we lived uh, on the verge of poverty, but we were, in his opinion, getting great education. And it bonded our family together. Uh, it, it, you know, we're a dysfunctional family, and very frankly, we're very dysfunctional. We've had problems internally with their behaviors and drug dependencies and substance abuse and things. But we're still a family, and it was based on those values. And so I've approached business, especially in the last 15 years or so, as being an extension of a positive family versus a negative family. I got into business because... Uh, I didn't uh, work well for bosses and managers. I had low respect for those people. And I, just, I thought there was a better way. When the opportunity presented itself uh, to, to get in business back in 1970, I borrowed money from my girlfriend and got into business. Part of my promise was I'd pay her back and then we could get married. So she's been my bride for <laughs> over 40 years. But uh, it's been a journey that uh, I, I still learn today I'm still learning factors and I'm learning from young people I'm learning from 20 year olds so that's the background of what I do well it's uh, amazing what uh, goes into our various backgrounds and from your very large family to uh, your dad obviously being a leader of a a big company um, family kind of keep keeps coming up you you've had the opportunity to work with uh, family members, how have they been involved in your businesses? 
Well, all of my family members, all of my siblings at one time worked with me in one of the companies that I owned. Uh, two remain, uh, my brother Kevin, my brother Larry, and um, the rest have gone on and done other things. But, uh, you know, the family approach to business isn't really the right approach to business because God gave us our families, you know. I, I had no choice of who my brother or sister would be, neither did they with me. But if you had an altruistic family, a, a beautiful family where people cared for each other and there were leaders and there were mentors and there were senior leaders such as a parent and a child or whether it's a, a shepherd and a flock, whatever it may be, um, we've decided in the last 15 years, especially with the help of the small giants community, all the great leaders that have influenced me in considering the people element of the business. And when we were young, my father was very strict about behaviors. Uh, he was a World War II Army sergeant, and he had uh, he brought in the radar into the, uh, the Pacific theater conflict. And he was a technician, and he, he's by training, he's an electrical engineer, and he was vice president of quality for Zenith Radio when Zenith was at its peak of popularity in audio and, and video. And um, so he was really fixated on quality systems and processes, et cetera. But uh, most of all, he was focused on responsibility. Ethics, of course, you know, following religious standards, but responsibilities. And uh, that's what I drained from him at an early age, is that, that, that he must be responsible for others that, that uh, you're in charge of. You know, something you said early about uh, the fact that your entree into business was in part because you really didn't like working for anybody else. Uh, and, and I think that's sometimes common with entrepreneurs that uh, we don't flourish as well uh, with authority and, and kind of go out on our own. Have, have you seen that with uh, others that you've been involved with or even other members of your family? I see it with some of our members of uh, the small giants communities, especially the leaders that I really treasure, didn't seem to like working for other people. Because I would ask, what's your background? And in my case, I got fired from every job I ever had, except for the Northwestern Railroad that I worked at while I was going through college. And that was a great learning experience because I was the only English-speaking person in the gang that worked on the track. The rest were all Mexicans. So I understood what it felt like to be an outsider. I didn't understand their language. And every time they laughed, I thought they were laughing at me. And it, that was a tremendous insight to working. Now 50% of our workforce is uh, Spanish as a primary language. It taught me the sensitivities of being on the other side of the coin. But uh, I didn't like managers. I just didn't like bosses. I just didn't like being yelled at, being screened at. You know, I, I, I didn't think I deserved that. And even in grammar school, I, I learned that the sisters, the good nuns that taught us, weren't always telling us the truth, and they were manipulating us. And when I got to high school, I found priests and teachers outright lying to me, <laughs> telling me mistruths and uh, psychologically abusing me, making fun of the way that I looked and making fun of uh, my my reports, the way I spoke. And I had serious eye issues at that time. I had to wear these strange glasses. And I said, nobody deserves to be treated like that. So it had a big influence that when we started a business that people were not going to be abused like that psychologically, physically, verbally, that this was just not the right way to do business. So your lessons as a leader really started early. Um, and let's dig into that a little bit um, in your childhood. And when was the first time that you realized uh, I am a leader 
And how did you develop the confidence to think of yourself that way? Well, I think it was the day that my father, my father used to use leave tasks that had to be done every day, chores, and it was posted on a kitchen wall. And one day we came home and we had to line up when he came home. It was like being in the army from the oldest to the youngest. My older sister, I'm the second oldest, the oldest boy. My older sister fled to the convent, became a Catholic nun and has done very well in the theological world. But uh, I always had to be the first in line. And he used to grill me about whether the jobs were done. <laughs> one day he slapped me because one of my brothers didn't do what he was supposed to do. Uh, said, what did you do that for? <laughs> and he said, you're the oldest. You're responsible. <laughs> and that was my introduction to leadership as a child. I, it was an introduction to responsibility. I, learned how to, I, learned, I had to learn how to barter, negotiate, manipulate, stimulate. Not manipulate. I shouldn't say that. I never delivered manipulation. But intimidate and threaten to get my siblings to follow my father's wishes because I did not want to get punished. I did not want to be humiliated. So... That was my first introduction to what leadership is also responsibility. It's not just giving orders. It's not privilege. It's more of a responsibility. So you didn't necessarily choose leadership. It's not. It, it was, in a sense, forced upon you. Uh, and not that that's a bad thing in this case, that, that uh, as the oldest, your dad uh, thrust responsibility on you and said, uh, you need to take responsibility as a leader. Can you think of any other... Uh, emotional events from your childhood days that may have shaped uh, your your leadership approach? Well, in high school, I got into a lot of fights because I couldn't stand bullying and seeing people being picked on. And uh, so I would open up my mouth and challenge the bully people, the bullies, and I'd usually get my butt kicked. I was not the biggest, strongest guy in the world, but I just couldn't tolerate that. And this was during the era of Martin Luther King, and uh, in fact, I was in a, a junior class when uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. And so our, our school was very active in the civil rights movement, learning about it. And, uh, you know, if I'm going to sit there and listen to Mahatma Gandhi's preaching and Martin Luther King, the Reverend Martin Luther King's preaching, why not act on it? Why not do something about it? And so that was another emotional thing that pretty soon I earned respect because you would not, I would not tolerate a freshman being picked on by a senior. I'd just walk up and say, stop that. You can't do that. So this was another major emotional development before I got into the adulthood. And uh, I, got, uh, I, this, I have a whole series of stories such as that that if, if there's a wrong happening, I, I'm just very much against it and I want to stop it. And that, in turn, develops a respect and a trust that you become a leader through those kind of things. Not that I wanted to be a leader. Never wanted to be a leader. I'm just too introverted, too shy. I always wanted to be number two or number three and just be a thinker rather than a leader. But it was thrust upon me and I just did it. It sounds like when faced with challenge, in, in the case of critics, negative influencers, uh, listening to Martin Luther King, uh, being faced with bullies, sometimes being faced with uh, uh, verbal abuse from your Catholic school teachers. You know, how did that shape you today in terms of ha how you handle critics, how you handle negative influencers, uh, either with yourself or as you see it in the workplace? Wow, that's a good question. 
I think as a point of clarification, I'd like to separate critics from negative influencers just from the way I interpret it, and I'll clarify that. I think critics are people that do not agree with the decision, an approach or a behavior of a leader. They're critical about the outcome of a leader's behavior or thoughts. I think critics should be respected, especially if they communicate that criticism directly to the leader. So if someone is critical about something I say, I encourage it by listening, acting, rationalizing. In fact, I have this meeting scheduled tomorrow with the group of people in our office that want things done that are just illogical. It just cannot happen. Rather than just say your idea is stupid, I'll say, let's meet Thursday morning. We'll talk about this. So I think, uh, you know, if someone trusts me enough to tell me that something I'm doing or supporting is wrong, wow, that's a powerful relationship. That's a very caring, deep relationship. So I want to have an open dialogue with the critic. Uh, the communication usually resolves the inner pain on the critic's part as well as heightens the sensitivity in that area in, as a leader. So I think vocal critics are far better than those that internalize issues because uh, that they can't support. That those people usually become actively disengaged. The critics who can't verbally or vocally uh, discuss what they're concerned about, their critic, their criticism. So on the other hand, the negative influencers, um, I think those are the people that are disagree, such as a critic, with the leader, but rather than communicate their disagreements with the leader or people that can change that, they turn to fellow staff and engage in toxic gossip. And I think gossip is the toxicity that destroys most organizations. Um, I think people gossip about two major areas. One is what the financial standing of the company is, and the other one is what's going on, what's going on in the company. So there are people that will be silent in meetings. We, You know this, Paul. You're a great leader, and, and all those small giants were filled with tremendous great leaders. But you'll be at a meeting, and you can see by eye contact or you can see by physical demonstration the person doesn't agree, but they won't open their mouth. And, and I know as soon as they leave the office, leave the conference room, leave the meeting area, wherever, they'll go back and start speaking negatively about the decision. So those people I just want to weed out of the organization and get rid of. Our people know that uh, when we hire them, when we hire staff, we talk about gossiping. We we talk about gossiping quite often. We talk about, I purposely sit by myself every day at lunch. We have lunch as a family, 12.30. When I'm in town, I sit by myself. And anybody that's got an issue can walk over and sit at the table with me, and we'll talk about whatever they want to talk about. But our people know that uh, gossiping is a violation of two core values. The, number one, it's ethical. It's uh, not right to, uh, you have to treat people with respect, and you can't, uh, can't psychologically or emotionally destroy anybody. And our second core value is treat all with respect. So they, they're told on their onboarding, uh, the culture classes, leadership classes, that negative influencers will be terminated. They just won't be tolerated. And, and one of the ways that we've done that here, I've learned over time, is that we tell, tell people during these processes that if they're talking about me this way, they're going to be talking about you that way. So they're not good for anybody. You're not here one day, all the talk's going to be about what you do wrong. So I have no, I, I enjoy critics and I reject negative influencers. Well, you know, it seems from your childhood that you were certainly willing to speak up and uh, and that may have got you beat up a couple of times, but you were willing to stand for what was important to you. I think you make a great distinction and something that not all of us do well in business is realize that 
critics or people that disagree with us are some of the best people in the business. And we want to encourage that conversation. And, and a good conversation, I always say, solves just about everything. When it moves to negative influencers who are spreading that gossip and talking about negative things but not willing to engage in a fruitful conversation, that's really when things are brought down. And what I love about what you said is that we don't tolerate it. And, and companies that are known for great cultures don't mean that they tolerate negativity. It means that they stamp it out. I, I remember uh, in my days as a CEO being willing to stand up at a town hall to say, look, we're on a mission to make the world a better place and we are not going to tolerate negative influencers. Uh, if you exist out there, we're going to seek you out, find you, track you down and make you feel so uncomfortable that you're likely going to self-select. And if not, then we'll make that tough decision and we'll get rid of you. I mean, that's uh, and then what happens is uh, that's one of the toughest things to do is to make those those tough decisions. while everyone else is looking at us and saying, what took you so long? So I exactly, Paul. Yeah, what I love is that you you don't even wait until there's an issue. The fact is, and the lesson I think for everybody listening is that this starts at orientation. This starts at the time, the day you start to say, "This is our. Uh, these are the ways that we behave. These are the rules of engagement." And I think that you set the stage right there. And I want to also mention. Something that, that you do, and I've had the, the uh, pleasure of joining you at one of your lunches. And, and uh, one of the wonderful things is that in your company, uh, Tasty Catering, we have a, a, a catering company and everybody's working hard all day. At 1230, the place just stops, shuts down. The staff makes a nice lunch. Everybody gets a line, gets a, a tray and, and serves themselves lunch. And the entire company, including you, sit and have lunch together. And what you said is that you're always sitting at a table with an open invitation to anyone to sit with you to talk about anything. And there's a sense of openness and humbleness there that I think all of us can learn from, which is simply to make ourselves available. And the idea that... Uh, that you can make that time. I, I would bet that it was hard to get your your huge family of all your siblings and your parents to have a meal all at the same time. And I can imagine you get a tremendous amount of pride by taking that that time at twelve thirty every day for everybody to really be a family and engage in those discussions. Well, thank you. That was my brother Larry's idea, and our father did say that we had dinner as a family at 6 o'clock, and the phone was taken off the receiver, and uh, we would not answer doorbells, and all of our friends were told, don't come to our house between 6 and 7, because that's family time. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. the offspring from our parents. So, you know, we talked about um, some of the decisions we, we make, uh, and we make lots of decisions every day, but can you think back to maybe the toughest decision you've ever had to make in the workplace? Yeah, that's an easy one because it still hurts me to this day. Um, I had to release one of my brothers from our company. There were four brothers and we started Tasty Catering. I, when we started just before we started Tasty Catering, I started a different restaurant and brought in two of my brothers. Then we started Tasty Catering, I brought in a fourth brother. And uh, after a couple of years, I had to release him from the company just almost physically throw him out the door because of repeated moral and ethical violations. And he was a shareholder. And, uh, this happened in the late 80s. And today I feel there's still resentment within my siblings for taking this step that, uh, that some of them think I should have worked through it, but there was just no changing in the behavior. 
So it was the right thing for the company, but perhaps the wrong thing for my brother. And my brother passed away about 10 years ago from cancer. And sitting there talking to him in his last conversations, uh, I told him that it still bothered me to this day that I had to do what I did. He looked at me and smiled. He said, you did the right thing. So between my brother and I, it was peace. But, uh, you know, there's a device in their family about the way I treated him. But the company understood from that moment on, this was right at the beginning of Tasty Catering. It was probably 1989 that uh, we mean business here. You know, brothers will go, nephews, nieces will go, everybody will go if we don't follow. So that was the hardest decision at all. Yeah, I I resonate with that uh, for sure. And and I I started my business with my my two brothers and my older brother uh, left the business in 2000. By sending us an email and uh wow and that was it and uh so while we look back and certainly it was the best thing uh for us as a company and actually gave me an opportunity to step forward and see what i could do to learn to be a leader myself uh it it hurt uh and and i think there are still um conversations that we haven't had that that go back all the way to then. And, um, and something I'm struggling with today with my, my older brothers to, um, uh, have that, that, that conversation, um, and understand that some of the things I think he might be thinking, maybe he isn't thinking, you never know. And uh, it's just like, uh, I have to have the same courage that I, I, uh, try to, uh, suggest to everyone I work with, which is, simply have the conversation and good things will happen. I think even that conversation uh, with your brother, the last one where he, he said you did the right thing was something uh, that was important for you to hear. And, and you would probably have been good to have heard a lot earlier than what you did. So, uh, so I certainly appreciate that that's, uh, those are thoughts and emotions that, that don't go away. Let's take a quick break. Support for today's episode comes from Benedictine University's Center for Values-Driven Leadership, where they offer a PhD program for senior executives who want to build strong, positive cultures that deliver exceptional performances. The unique curriculum combines academic rigor with insights you can put to work on Monday morning. Through the three-year program, you become an expert in the aspect of leadership you're most passionate about so you can have a transformative impact in your business, and on society. Find out how you can lead your company while you earn your PhD. Visit cbdl.ben.edu slash doctorate for more information or Google PhD Values Leadership. That's PhD Values Leadership. And now back to the podcast. You know, there are many lessons we all learn along the way as we're just figuring this out. Can you think of a time maybe where you learned something from an unexpected person or an unexpected place that shaped you as a leader? Oh boy, that that happens all the time, Paul. As, as you know, we learn from everybody that we speak to. Um, we're blessed that we have, we share some great friends in the small giants community, but in regular social activities in professional settings, I, I learned all the time. I'll, my favorite two questions to people is, what was the worst thing that happened to you in the last year? What was the best thing that happened to you? But I think one of the most significant statements that happened to me it just came unexpectedly out of my father's mouth. He wouldn't talk about World War II. 
but we were discussing the responsibility of leadership, and, and I said, well, what was it like to be a leader of men in combat, in a combat situation? And he said, well, he learned as a sergeant, you're the last one, or the first one to take watch and the last one to sleep, and you're the last one to eat, and you take care of your men, and that if I ever became an officer, if I was ever drafted or went into the Army, if I was an officer, I'd better learn how to consult with my sergeants because the sergeants know how to run the unit, which, you know, in business, you need to know your frontline employees and know what they think. But he told me the story. I said, well, who was the, when you were in combat and when you guys were sitting around talking about leaders, who did you respect the most? And he told me about uh, the Supreme Allied Commander, Dwight David Eisenhower. And he said uh, the, the story about the angst the night before D-Day when he was thinking of how many families would be traumatized forever because he was sending their men off to be killed and uh, how that was his biggest problem and how he wrestled with that. And here he went on to become the President of the United States and developed their inner state. He just didn't shut down after the war. And he told me another one about a great leader, Finnegar Joe Stilwell, and how he made his staff leave Burma and get into China. And uh, he marched at, at 100, I think it was 105 steps a minute, which is almost marching. Uh, it's like in a marching band for two days and he was at the front of the column and they were kept offering him a jeep because he was in the 60s and he says i'm not going to ask my people to walk one step that i don't walk so i'm going to lead the way and he got those people to safety so you know here's an unexpected source it's about you could go to college <laughs> you could study at universities about responsibility and leadership and you know thinking about the actions the reactions and the outcomes of your thoughts and your deeds and how it impacts other people and, and how you have to sacrifice as a leader. So that was my first unexpected learning from him was, you know, how to approach being a leader. That, you know, thank God I've never had to send people out to die, but I, I don't know how a person could live with that. It's amazing how much we, we learn from our parents and it sounds like, of course, your dad uh, had a tremendous impact on your life and makes me think about my dad and, and, uh, uh, just the work ethic that that he had, and um, I always call him my saint because uh, he is someone that I've I've just looked up to um, all my life, and uh, and the lessons that he left me were were very simple. Uh, he just said, "Always be nice, never burn a bridge, and treat people with respect." And uh, what I—that's what you do. <laughs> Well, exactly I, you, Paul. Well, I try, but I, I, uh, it's, it's very simple, but these are not things that we're going to learn about in school uh, and, or in business school or in law school or any of that. Um, but they, they, people ask, well, where, where did you decide that you wanted to be a values-driven leader or you wanted to have a great culture? Well, we never decided. I think our parents just raised us to be good people. And then when we treated other people the same way, we realized that that was something that could help us in business. And not all businesses work that way, let's, let's be honest. Um, but the, the impact uh, that my dad had, I think, in, in, in a very similar way to yours is just uh, very, very powerful. And Tom, you know, you've, you've had uh, tremendous experience, lots of success in your businesses as well. Now you act as, uh, I think, more chief culture officer for the business than anything else. Um, but you're, you're an important person who's, who accomplished a lot, who speaks at management associations, academics. Uh, you've written a lot. 
Um, and uh, that can also create ego for people. So how do you stay grounded, remain accessible and authentic to the people that you work with or you come in contact with? Well, thank you for the platitudes, Paul, but I still feel like I'm that ugly, wacko kid in school that people made fun of. You know, I just, I, I was born poor, and if I die poor but happy, I, that's what life is all about. Um, I think being accessible is very important. Uh, my role is, is to be, to help people in the world because I've become older. And this is what happens as we mature like Methuselah. You know, our role is to be the shepherd of people, to be available when people need to, to converse with the, with the senior decision maker, like in our company. And they know that they can set up, send me an email. I, I don't have a smartphone. I have a dumb phone because I don't want to be texted or bothered by phone calls. But they know that, uh, you know, two or three times a week, I get a critical email saying, could you meet with me to talk to me about an issue? And if I could reduce the stress and if I could reduce the disruptors from an employee's life, and they're going to give back so much more to the company and their families. They're going to be happier. They're going to create a happy atmosphere. And outside the company, I think it's uh, critical to be accessible because uh, when I was a young entrepreneur, 22, 23 years old and starting their entrepreneurship was a foreign word, it was a French word, and people really didn't understand what it was. You know, my dad told me, graduate from college, if you go to college and get a job with a major company, you'll have a defined pension and you'll live forever. And, you know, you get you, after 50 years, you get a gold watch and you get a retirement. I'm thinking, really, is that all there is to life? I, I don't know if I want to do that. But, um, as I started business, there weren't many entrepreneurs in the city of Chicago. There weren't, there weren't people you go to to ask advice. And I'll never forget that feeling. You know, I, through my life, I took snapshots and I said, I, I, I'll never forget the pain of the way I'm being treated by my parents, you know, and they would become very manipulative or not forget the pain of a teacher or understanding that people lied. And I'd say, I'm never going to do that. I'm not going to repeat that. So now when someone comes to me with, with a concern, well, it's a human soul saying, help me. I need help. And if I can share wisdom, that's what I think the duty is of an older person. It's just like a grandmother. I mean, how often does a grandmother tell a grandchild, you know, I don't bother me, I'm too busy. That's what, you know, grandparents do. So the, uh, the, so the accessibility, you know, it's becoming a problem. And that's why I just disconnect for periods of time and let people know that I'm not going to be available because I need to do, take care of my own personal self. But I think accessibility and helping others is, uh, it's just, that's the duty. It's a responsibility of a leader. Now, here's something I learned from an academic, Mary Follett Parker, who was the mother of modern management, and she was a very important influencer. In 1925, she wrote this comment. I'll never forget it. The most important job of the leader is to create other leaders. And it's not the power a leader has, but the power that the leader um, transfers to the followers. So the point is, if we're leaders, it's our responsibility, it's our duty to create other leaders, to help other leaders grow. And, you know, it's like building our 401k plan or social security. If we can help other business owners become more successful, it's going to come back to us in some way. So That's absolutely right. And, and a great lesson for what is what it means to be a leader, which is not managing the business or hitting the number. It's creating other leaders and making sure we have the right people in the right seats at the right time. You know, that that's so true. You know, I, I recall a story um, that I think was a humbling experience for you uh, a, a number of years ago about your own role as a leader at Tasty Catering and, and maybe some, some uh, 
sentiments that were shared by your your family. Um, can you can you share that experience with us? <laughs> there were a lot, Paul. If you could narrow in on one, I would like that. Well, I think remember what it was. Oh. I, I think it, it might have been Tim and uh, Aaron talking about uh, the kind of leader you were, and and uh, oh. yes, yeah. So uh, one day, shortly after we moved in this building in nineteen in two thousand five, uh, Tim and Jamie, and Jamie Tim and me on to uh, work with logistics because she has a very strategic brain. And now she's the co-owner of two of our companies, co-founder and owner of two of our companies. But the two of them appeared at my desk. I think they were 24 and 23. And they said, if you don't change, we're leaving. <laughs> change what? I want to say, get the hell out of here. <laughs> change what? And they said, we don't like command and control. We're not going to work like this. We're tired of you telling us what to do, yelling at us, your brother's yelling at us, not trying to figure out what everybody's doing, spending the first 20 minutes of the day conversing. Tom's in a foul mood today. Larry's in a foul mood today. Kevin's in a foul mood today. Well, Larry told me to do this, but Tom told me to do it a different way. And so that was the start of our of our culture. And uh, I said, I, I frankly don't know how to lead any other way because I've learned from the way my father did. And Kurt Lewin in the 30s or 40s wrote this great book about leadership, and it was basically command and control. And uh, well, it doesn't work with millennials. And I found that out that day. So we supported their change. And, you know, just before that, Tim had really ripped me in a, in a organizational meeting. It was probably three years earlier. He made fun of me <laughs> with the senior lead leaders of our restaurant group and our catering company because I want to invest in yellow pages. <laughs> says, How old are you? Are you our kids? <laughs> you pay any attention? We're not, we shouldn't spend money in yellow pages. Only old people like you read yellow pages. Everybody else goes online. I said, well, you have to have a yellow page ad so they know where to find you online. This is how technologically ignorant I was, and still am. And so he he told me, he just got really high with me, and he said, give me that money, I want to transfer that money, and I want to use it for whatever. And he just grew the business. I mean, it was ridiculous. I can't remember the percentages, but it just exploded. And at that point, I realized that uh, this guy was pretty smart, <laughs> and I was pretty stupid. And so when he said it, I at least had some opinion of who he was, you know, that he understood this. So... That story goes a little bit further. We went through this great change, and we found out that we followed Edgar Schein's change, or excuse me, uh, Cotter's change, Eight Steps to Change. We didn't even know who Cotter was, but we followed the, the way you're supposed to change an organization perfectly. We did everything right, but it was because it was done by everybody in the organization. And Tim said, employees are going to lead the change, not you, because then the employees will own the culture. They will own it, and they will follow it, not you. They won't listen to you. They're tired of listening to you. Shortly thereafter, Aaron taught me, told me that no one's reading our newsletter, that we were sending it out to 100 people, but only like seven people were opening it because nobody wanted to hear what I'd say. So we have to change the communication where it's everybody participated. She created a template they flooded it. And that's when she changed my title from uh, CEO to Chief Culture Officer. And the basics of organizational behavior, you have antecedents, which is our culture everybody's organization starts with their culture and then the behaviors and that leads to consequences a b c and she gave me the title of chief culture officer <laughs> what does this mean and she says we have our culture it's your job to enforce it because then we don't need a presence that we don't so it all started that morning when tim and jamie said it was i think november 28th of 2005 they said either you change or we're leaving wow uh what a 
what an amazing and important event in, in your leadership journey. So what I'm hearing was that uh, we're not all wired to lead this way. Uh, we, you grew up uh, in a command and control uh, run family. You learned lessons from your dad about a certain type of leadership. And it really wasn't until your own employees at that time and, and family uh, reached out and said, this isn't working. And you were open enough to change and to learn how to lead a different way and now have become um, a different type of leader. Your company is one of the Forbes uh, top small companies in America. Uh, I mean, you've won all sorts of awards. So uh, as you look back, um, were they right? Oh boy, were they right! And it taught me uh, taught me to figure out why they were right, Paul. So I wouldn't repeat that, and I wouldn't repeat that approach. And it taught me. I studied a lot about generation integration, and I studied a lot about what millennials do differently from Gen Xers, do differently from the Boomers, and from the the, the greatest generation of all, the World War II vets. Uh, and you know, one of the things I found out in that study is that. Our IQs, you know, naturally as we get older, we have great EQs, emotional quotient, emotional intelligence, because we've experienced a lot more. But our IQs uh, tend to change as we get older. Uh, and young people have this tremendous ability for fluid intelligence, and it's the ability to solve problems without a predetermined course. Here's a, here's a problem. This is the outcome we'd like. Can you fix it? And they do it. And I remember in an early age when I was 15 and 16 years old, I was tearing apart car engines and putting them back together without instructions and building great automobiles, you know, fast cars to race. But older people, you know, they tend to lose fluid intelligence somewhere around middle of their young adulthood. And crystallized intelligence comes into people such as me. And that's just, you know, there's a, I know a way, I can look into my history, my wisdom and say, I know a way to solve this issue because it's somewhere in my experience I've solved it, but I can't take, I can't just think of something on my own. That's typical. It's done, you know, scientists have proven this. So now we look at younger people to lead us in strategic thinking because they have, they can identify problems and they can come up with solutions that aren't coming out of textbooks. They can just say, based on what we do here, I think this would work better. And that's what's really, that's the key part of what's led to our success. And I never understood what fluid intelligence was and crystallized intelligence until I spoke to some academics about this and proved that my theory that having young leaders was critically important. What's amazing is the extent to which you are committed to learning and growing um, as a person and as a leader. And uh, you're my idol, I'll tell you, uh, to have uh, dug in, whether it's to books or theories or academics and having the patience to learn and investigate uh, so that you can um, share that wisdom with others is just amazing, Tom. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of young people who would say, uh, I just I want to be like you one day, Tom. Uh, what kind of advice would you offer to those people about how to proceed in their young and uh, burgeoning careers? Well, thank you for the compliment, Paul, but you're my idol, and that's why I've been following you for the past eight or nine years, however long we've known each other. I've, I've learned so much from you and uh, town hall meetings and accessibility, et cetera, so I can't let that go unstated. But uh, if, if someone, you know, I do work, I actively mentor a lot of people, and uh, 
young entrepreneurs. And first thing I tell them is, is I hope you're psychologically masochistically inclined because if you're not, you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. There's a lot of mental pain that you're going to, and if you don't enjoy that mental pain, you're not going to survive. And you either have the disease or you don't have it. And I, and I, and if you want to end up where I am, it's about listening to others. It's not about yourself. Now there are, there are, there are entrepreneurs that have become, we know, we know them. We share friends, but some have done it their way all the way. And they're, they have a clear, compelling vision and that works for them, but it's not me. So if you want to be like me, gather yourself a great company and make sure everybody's involved and everybody's decisions and thoughts matter. And instead of having one or two leaders, you could have 250 leaders and thinkers. And if we all have 60,000 thoughts a day, which science has proven and the average employer gets 68%, learn to trust your people. So to do that, you have to establish values. Just determine what are your values. And when I speak to kids in college or entrepreneur organizations, I said, list your, your five most important values right now. And I'll give them a sheet of 120 values. I said, all right, those are your, don't show them to me. They're for you. It's your most important values. Don't ever compromise those. Ever, 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 ever. You always follow that. So you'd be known as a person with integrity. And then be authentic. You know, you can be, you know, you lose your temper. You can have emotional dips and swings. But as long as you never violate those five core values, you will be authentic. And that's the best kind of leader of all. And uh, then surround yourself with great peers, great people in your company. You know, don't hire just on skill. Hire in the culture fit. But then surround yourself with peers like I have in small giants, tremendous peers. And when I have a problem, I can pick up the phone and call somebody or send them an email. And then mentors, mentors and consultants, outside consultants that can steer your organization in a different way. And you become great when it changes from I to we to they. And you watch, I watch the use of different prepositions and different words to I can tell where they are in their journey in life. But talk to a seasoned entrepreneur. It's about your employees, your staff, your company. They've done a great job. They've built something great here. So if you want to be where I am, it's a very painful road. Or you could just learn what I've learned in the last 10 years by listening to 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds and people from the small giants community. Well, that's uh, that's great advice, Tom. I think I can uh, sum it up by saying uh, it's not about you; it's about everyone around you. And for young people that are listening and are familiar with crowdsourcing, that's all it is. It's it's building a crowd around you and uh, getting the best ideas from uh, the people that are are actually doing the work. And I think that that's uh, the best kind of leader to be. I want to end. Uh, our great talk with just a couple of quick hit questions. So kind of the game of association, maybe just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. We'll just have four or five of these and then we'll wrap up, Tom. Uh, name a, a famous leader you look up to. Uh, Joe Madden of the Chicago Cubs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a big baseball fan at all, but what he did with that team and how he integrated everybody and how he got everybody involved and he made fun of himself. I mean, he's a phenomenal leader. Yeah, what a great story last year. Uh, name a great book that influenced your leadership style. And uh, when I was a sophomore, when I was a junior in high school, I had to read a book about the great minds of Western civilization. And uh, that influenced me a lot because I learned how to think. I read about Rousseau, Kant, Descartes, uh, Locke, all the way back to Aristotle and 
Socrates, the basis of law. But as an example, a year ago, I went out and bought the book, Great Thinkers of the Western World, 100 Great Thinkers, and had our leadership team read every week somebody different and just talk about what it was. And I watched to see who was just reading from the book and who was interpreting and applying it. So it told me who the strategic thinkers were, the critical thinkers were in the organization. But that, learning about philosophy from what these people discovered and how they discovered it, I think had the biggest influence of all as a book. Hmm. What's your all-time favorite movie? A Christmas Story. Uh, did you watch it? Little Ralphie. Yes, I watched it with my grandsons. Oh my heavens! <laughs> the cool part about that movie is that it was filmed in Gary, Indiana, and I'm from Chicago. It was about 30 miles away. I found the exact location where this kid grew up, and it was Gene Shepard, who is one of the all-time story American great storytellers. And he did the movie, and I believe he did the voiceover. And uh, little Ralphie was me, with <laughs> the screwy oh. glasses and the wool snowsuit, and you'd fall over and you couldn't get up. And all I wanted was a Red Rider BB gun when I was a kid, or whatever it was called, the Daisy Red Rider. My mother kept saying that blow my brothers and sisters' eyes out, and I couldn't have one. And to this day, I tell my wife, I want to get a Red Rider oh. BB gun. And she won't have any guns in the house. But, you know, that whole story about the family interactions, I, the first time I saw it, I said, my God, I could be sitting in a room with these people. This is what we did. I don't think my grandchildren appreciated it as much as I did, but that well, struck a familiar chord. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that, though it's not, maybe not my all-time favorite movie, my favorite Christmas movie is Elf with Will Ferrell. So a little bit lighter. Oh, yeah. A little lighter fare. <laughs> All right, so now you're on a stranded, you're stranded on an island. You get to take one thing with you. What would it be? Desalination kit, probably. Yeah, yeah. Sure, I have water, but okay. uh, that, that's a physical thing. The emotional thing would be a picture of my family. Oh, yeah. I'd always remember them. And uh, tell us something about you that people don't know. Most people. I don't know. I'm pretty transparent. Probably the thing that that's, that's surprising to most is the fact of how terribly shy I am and introverted I am. Now I can't stand being around people for more than like two or three hours before I have to just go escape and <laughs> deprogram myself. I, you know, I, I'm, there's a psychological test, and I found out my daughter is exactly like me, and my son is, is introverted also. But I'm, you know, my profile showed that I'm. I'm intimate, which means I can have a great discussion with you and friends one-on-one, two-on-one, three-on-one, or whatever. But when it gets to be more people, it just creates mental stress. So I have a major difficulty in that. Tom, we have a lot in common, but I think that's the one we have in common the most. And uh, um, and people are sometimes surprised about me as well that don't know me as um, – and I think something about leadership has gotten me out of my comfort zone in that regard because – uh, as introverts, um, doesn't mean we don't make good leaders, but sometimes we have to be in front of the crowd. Sometimes we have to stand up and we have to uh, exert influence in a group. So I, I think uh, we we continue to grow in that in that regard. But uh, yeah, I'm the one as well that uh, rather than be out in front of the crowd, I'm probably more comfortable, uh, you know, cowered underneath my desk in the fetal position trying to figure out what to do next. Um, and most people don't really know that. So. Uh, you know, this well said, is Paul. this isn't easy work, but uh, I'll tell you, you know, you you inspire me every day, and and you you continue to do incredible work uh, with your company, your family, 
and um, with all of us in the Small Giants community. So I just want to thank you for your being so humble and transparent and genuine with us today. And, and thanks for spending time with us, Tom. Thank you, Paul. And thank you for starting the Small Giants and making it happen because it's one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life. And your friendship means a lot to me. And by the way, I think I do know about your introvertedness because I'll see you standing in a corner all by yourself and I will walk over to talk to you. <laughs> He's in his quiet zone right now. Ah, I gave myself away. All right. Well, thanks very much, Tom. We'll talk soon. Take care, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. Until next time.